Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. There's a beautiful hymn that many people might know. It's called In the Garden. Well, that was his favorite hymn. So when I hear that, that's all I can see and think of. Prayer is extremely difficult for me. It's getting better. I become very defensive if someone ever says the words to me. Well, the Bible says I cringe when I hear those words. So he really, he took all the things that were once such importance to me and brought such joy to me and really took it away from me. He stripped me of the beliefs that I had. Now, I still have a faith in God, but I miss, I really do miss those connections I had within the church, but I can no longer have those same connections. He took that away from me. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Sandy, thank you so much for joining me on the Preach Boys podcast. Can you introduce yourself to our audience to let them know how you first got involved in a church setting? I started attending church when I was about eight years old. My best friend who lived up the street invited me to go. My mother and stepfather were not involved in the church. My parents were divorced. I didn't see my dad that often. So I just truly fell in love with church the first time I went. I was very active, BBS, church camp, you know, anything that the church had I was there. It wasn't just a spiritual relationship, but it was also an emotional attachment because of the situation from my home life. As I got older, I taught Sunday school. I mean, it probably would be no exaggeration to say if the doors of the church were open, I was there. I absolutely loved everything about church. I was baptized in the church when I was 13. And from that point, I would say my spiritual life was really, I lived my spiritual life. It was very important to me. And I read my Bible every day. I did everything that I was thought I was supposed to do within the walls of the church. Right. And, and when you talk about your, your home life, was it, was it an abusive home life? Was no, it no, not it just, at all. It, it felt was disconnected a little bit. 
the divorce was very traumatic for me as a child. We moved away from my dad and then my dad remarried and he had children. My mother had children. I was the oldest of all these half brothers and sisters. Mm. And I, it was just, you know, I probably felt like I wasn't getting enough attention. And when I came to church, there were people there who thought I was wonderful and they loved the things that I did in the church. And so it was just a nice place for me to kind of land and grow. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's an amazing element of a positive church environment is Mm -hmm. it can be a home away from home. It can be a place to connect with people. And, you know, you said it was a very positive emotional experience at the time. And looking back at the specific church and church experience, would you say that it was a well-intentioned positive thing that? Yes. And I had many people there who loved me, who supported me and they knew my parents were divorced. They knew my parents weren't in the church. So they kind of took me under their wing and guided me spiritually. It was a very loving, kind place. And I loved everything about it. Great. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, I mean, you've written a book on the topic of abuse in the church. And so, you know, the story doesn't, isn't happy all the way through there. There was a a large incident that happened, Mm -hmm. you know, in the middle of that, you know, growing up story. Can you talk a little bit about when things first started feeling, I guess, uncomfortable, or you noticed that something wasn't quite right? Well, it started because we hired a new youth pastor and he came just after I turned 16 He was really different from any pastor we'd had before. It was the early 70s, so he had long sideburns. He drove a convertible. He was 30 and married, but he didn't act like he was 30 and married. He acted more like our age. So he was very charismatic. People were just drawn to him. He really was a different kind of minister and pastor that we'd ever seen. So he took our youth group from like 25 kids to almost 200 in a short time. Wow. How how short a short time? Uh, Probably went less than a year. People were coming from all over to see this new cool youth minister. I mean, in the 70s vernacular, he was just hip. And not only the youth group, but the church was changing as well as he took this kind of transformation throughout the whole entire church. So there was a youth group meeting after my at my home, and he waited for everyone to leave. And he walked over to me, told me how much he cared about me, told me how much he loved me and that he was so thankful I was in the church. And then he bent down and he kissed me and not once, but twice. And I thought, you know, what is he doing? I think he just kissed me. But then I thought, well, he's my minister. He wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And maybe this is his way of showing his affection. And Mm. I, I, I just, I didn't know else how to process it other than to think I just, this couldn't be happening because he's my pastor. So what happened was I babysat at his home two or three times in the evening. His wife worked in the evening. So this really gave him the perfect opportunity to spend time with me. So for about a year, I babysat. We'd sit and talk about the church. We'd talk about the Bible. None of it really seemed out of line to me. Sometimes he would kiss me. Sometimes he wouldn't. So I began to accept this behavior. And I I call that the grooming year. He was really Mm, setting this emotional connection up with me so that he could have his ultimate goal of having sex with me, which he did when I was 17. And Mm. that night was when I realized this was a horror that was happening to me, and I did not know what to do with it. And of course, Mm. once he did that, you know, he made me promise I'd never tell anyone and that no one was going to believe me. And and part of me didn't want to hurt his feelings because I had grown this attachment to him mm-hmm. over the year and he'd been so good to me. So there was this conflict within myself as to what to do with this. And so I just accepted that this was going to be what was going to happen and I didn't have any control over it. Right. 
Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, you know, that again, I mean, you're not from independent Baptist circles, but I've heard so many stories from people that sound so similar. And, you know, the way, the calculated way in which people get their victims to be comfortable with, you know, mm-hmm. an uncomfortable situation. And so just to, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is like that first moment your instinct was to say, oh, the problem must be me. I'm misinterpreting a good person's actions. Right. And how dare I accuse this man of something, of doing something wrong. It it must be okay. Right. What what age were you when you first, when you had that first interaction with him? And then how, was it just a year after that? I was 16 when he came to our church in March. And then that December is when he kissed me. And it was a year after that, that he, I was 17. He turned, he had sex with me in his home. Right. And that, I guess that whole year between 16 and 17, I was happy. I was content. Mm-hmm. I was sort of dating. I was leading the normal no. teenage life. So nothing was amiss other than that affection that he would show me. In, and you didn't you know, know how to, how to process that. As no. A, and so yeah. it was easier just to say, well, it's just his, and I felt special. I mean, I have to say, I, I thought, well, this is special. And you know, everyone in this church loves him. I mean, they practically thinks he walks on water. I mean, how lucky am I that he sits in the evening with me and spends mm-hmm. time with me and talks to me? I mean, so what's a little kiss? And I should make a big deal. And I'm 16. You yeah. know, I got the mind of a 16 year old. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're in a position where you're not, you're already not thinking clearly as a 16 year old. You're, you're thinking, you Most know, 16s are never accused of thinking clearly. Right. <laughs> they make a lot of right. dumb mistakes. Right. No, I mean, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties and I still am not accused of thinking clearly most of the time. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm, did you feel, so you said, obviously like when it actually progressed to intercourse, you said like, that was the moment you realized like, this isn't okay. I, I mean, um, you know, being raised as if we were Baptists or in the independent, you're, you know, your virginity, you know, no one has sex outside of marriage. And I mean, it, that I knew there wasn't right. any question of mine. He shouldn't be doing this. But again, I, and I, the other thing he said to me, and, and, and I was so taken aback, but I, I agreed with him. He said to me, well, you know, if you tell anyone, you're going to be responsible for what happens. And I kept thinking, you know, they're going to blame me or it's my fault mm-hmm. too. It's not just him. It's me. I let him do this. So I immediately started with the guilt and the shame. Yeah. Yeah. Plus too, I mean, when you're spending that year, like you said, there's no warning sign. You're mm-hmm. spending that year, you know, you're, even if it's not outright secrets, but like one of the things that, you know, abusers often do is create this feeling of secrecy or intimacy with you. So you feel like, well, we've had all these long conversations about the Bible. We've had all these long conversations about good things right. and to, you know, they set it up. So you'll feel like you're betraying them for speaking. Oh, about absolutely. What and doing. that's exactly how I felt. Yeah. yeah. So, so obviously he tried to instill that fear in you immediately after everything happened. Mm-hmm. At what point did you, did you, when you left, did you think I got to tell somebody, did you feel like I, I can't, was it, you know, at what I didn't point did feel you like feel I could tell anyone because yeah. first of all, I was, it's, it's 17. I was smart enough to know this would rock this church. I mean, this kind of thing would rock this church. So, and I didn't want anyone to know that I'd been doing this. It, it was right. like, you know, I'm, it wasn't just telling on him. It would be exposing me as well. So, yeah. and, and he used, you know, scripture to tell me that, you know, God was blessing this union. And it was because of my 
work in the church that I was helping him, that I was this helpmate to him. And this was God ordained this. He said, we Mm. were married in God's eyes. He then said, you know, he was like David in the Bible. So, Mm. you know, it it became where I, I, I accepted it because this was my spiritual leader. And that's what I ended up believing. Now, shortly after he crossed that boundary of having sex with me, the relationship turned ugly very quickly. Where I was once on a pedestal, all of a sudden I couldn't do anything right. I was ugly. I was fat. I was no longer worthy of being loved by anyone else because I wasn't a virgin. He was the only one that could love me. At one point, he became violent and hit me. It became So then it became, I didn't know how to get out of it. I was fearful of him in many ways. And the few times, I think there were twice that I went to him and said, I, this is too much for me. It's, I feel guilty. His response was either one of two ways. One, he would become very loving and caring and tell me how much he needed me. He'd play the guilt trip that how could I think about leaving him? Or he would become angry. He would grab me. He would tell me, who do you think you are thinking you could ever leave me? It was truly an abusive relationship yeah. emotionally and physically. Right. So at what point, what, what led to the the breakthrough where you felt like, I have no choice, I have to share my story, you know, how long after that till you became comfortable with being able to talk about it? 27 years. Wow. I've wow. spent 27 years hiding my past. My husband didn't know, my close friends never knew. I always worried someone would find out because there were people in the church that eventually found out what mm-hmm. he'd been doing. He was caught. With, but- with a different person, I'm assuming. No, with me. Two elders became suspicious and followed him one night and Mm. found us. He was given the opportunity to ask for forgiveness. No one asked me any questions. I was told by two elders that I was to respond this way. If someone asked a question, I was told where to sit and turn by the elders. He, on the other hand, was then given a going away party. He was sent to the next church. And a about three months after he was sent to that next church, I was um, called in by the elders and told because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And wow. I can I can tell you, I was devastated. I, yeah. I loved that church and I believed that people could be forgiven. I was taught that you could be forgiven. He was forgiven, but I was told because of my behavior, I couldn't be forgiven and I was no longer fit to worship in that church. And I have to say that over the years, that response from those elders probably had more of an effect on me than the actual abuse. Mm. It, it, it devastated my spiritual life. It just, I no longer could attend church. I uh, had trigger factors. Every time I walked past a minister's office at the church, I got a knot in my stomach for 27 years. Every Sunday that happened. As, as the years went on, I learned to manage those trigger factors. And then in chapter one, I talk about the trigger factor that really sent me over the edge. And I finally had to come out and tell someone what had been done to me. And that's okay. what started the process of the healing and eventually to the book. Right. And, and what was that trigger factor for those listening? I was driving to my, my daughter was in college at the time. It was, I was 49 years old. Uh, I was on my way to a golf tournament and I'd never driven the route before. And when I got to an exit sign, it said Queensgate, and that was the church they had moved him to. Hmm. And I was, I, I just became a panic stricken. I, I, I hmm. thought I'm near his church. I'm near where he lives, and all the memories and all the pain and the anguish came back to me. I, I pulled over to the side of the road and began sobbing, and I didn't know what to do with that because up until then I was pretty good about managing my trigger factors. Yeah. I was pretty good about hiding things. But this time I realized it wasn't going Mm. to go back down. So 
I made a decision to tell a friend. Mm. Wow. And, and it took me a while to tell my husband. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we'll circle back to, I have a couple questions mm-hmm. about some things you said earlier, but what was the reaction of your friend when you told them this information? And did you, you know, was it, a, was it a helpful reaction? You know, cause I, that's one thing that I know a lot of people struggle with is who do I tell? Mm-hmm. And there's always a fear, like, what if they respond, you know, right. with all the things that I've internalized, what if they say that to me? And that's mm-hmm. a, that's a huge fear of victims because right. I had firsthand knowledge what happened when people found out they threw mm-hmm. me out of a church. Yeah. So I had, a, and I, I will tell you the words don't ever tell, never leave you. So, mm-hmm it was burned in my memory of that. And so when I sat down with a friend that I chose because I really believed she would understand and I could trust her, it took me 20 minutes. I sat and sobbed in front of her and she's patiently waited. And I kept thinking, I'm going to get in trouble if I tell her. I mean, I'm married, I'm happy, I have a great life. And I still had that fear that I would get in Mm. trouble if I tell anyone. But I did tell her and she was very supportive. And then I eventually told two other friends and then I eventually told my husband, who who I knew would be supportive. But again, I couldn't, I thought, I can't risk him not understanding. No. And if he doesn't, maybe it's not worth telling him. But mm. I trusted him and I did tell him. Right. I, I want to circle back earlier because you, you talked about the, you know, kind of juxtaposition of how your situation was handled versus the abuser's situation and mm-hmm. how that was handled. And- you know, I'm curious and, you know, I asked this kind of knowing what I think, but I'm curious, mm-hmm. why do you feel you were treated so differently than he was? Do you think it was purely on gender? Do you think it was because it was religious status? Why do you think that was? I think it's because I was dispensable and he wasn't. He was bringing mm. in people. He was bringing in money. It was easier to blame me. I was this attractive young girl I also know that he was given the narrative of what had happened. So I don't know what he told them. So they never asked me anything. They took his side of, of what was happened, what happened. So I think I was an easy target just to say, she's easier, let her go. Right. So, yeah, I think that, and I, I think it comes down to, they did not. And I, I will say, I do think there is a feeling that there's, you know, we have a personal relationship with our ministers and our pastors and our priests. We have this relationship. They baptized us. They've married our children. They've, they've sat at our bedsides while our father or mother was dying. And so it's difficult to look at them and, and punish them for something that mm. they should be punished for or remove them from their job. We have, a, we have right. a sympathy and empathy for them that they don't have with the victim. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting relationship dynamic because to, and again, there are good pastors. There's out there, there's people who are are truly good people, but still there is a difficulty, especially in a youth group of 200 people or in a church of a thousand people, mm-hmm. no matter how much that pastor cares for you, the, the, the love your way to them is going to usually be stronger because you spent so much time listening to them versus them spending, right. you know, mm-hmm. 10 minutes talking to you or having you over for dinner once or twice. Yeah. And so I think that's why it becomes so easy for us to idolize someone because we're spending so much time under them. But it's also, I think what you said, we're expendable in a situation like that. They're looking mm-hmm. at who am I in staff meetings with every week? Who do I have this relationship with? Just, it's not in your favor as, as a victim. 
it's hard to do the right thing. That's, it comes yeah. down to what's the right thing to do is the hard, t- sometimes the hard thing to do. And they don't want to do that. It's easier to, you know, and they have sympathy. We know it's going to hurt his family and, right. and all those other issues that come in, into play. And so it's just easier. I was dispensable and, and they needed to get rid of me. Yeah. Um, and so they did. Yeah. So now uh, I eventually went back to those two elders 27 years later, Wow. both denied that they had ever told me to leave the church. So, you know, my seeking justice from them, it didn't happen. I, I, I wanted, I wanted an acknowledgement for what they had done to me and I didn't get that. Did you feel, even though they denied it, did you feel any sense of closure, at least bringing it up to them? I did. In a, okay. I, yes, I did. But I, I certainly was hurt and disappointed right. that even if they could have acknowledged they didn't remember it, but they were sorry if they did, would have gone a long way, but they could not right. go that far. Yeah. So, uh, oh, I don't want to, I don't know what that is. So I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Got buzzers going off here. No. So, yeah, it was. But I also confronted my abuser, which was very helpful. And I was glad I had that opportunity, but it, it too was disappointing in a lot of ways as well, but sure. I, I was able to do it. Yeah. Did he, was he denying what happened to the no, full he, extent? I, I was, I hate to use the term lucky, but I was lucky in the sense he couldn't deny it because it was so public and, and he knew that people knew. I, he couldn't say it didn't happen, mm. but he made excuses to why it happened. He had an alcoholic father. He went on about how his life had been miserable and there had been many cases of misconduct in his past. And he'd been identified as a sexual addict in therapy. I mean, he sat in this meeting and not once did he acknowledge the pain. He said he was sorry. But then he said to me, not for my sake, but for your sake, you need to forgive me. Hmm. So it was about him. It was all about him. He didn't take ownership over his action. No. You know? he, and he never could. I don't think he understood how he took my spiritual life away from me. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's talk about that, the, the spiritual side, because, you know, we, you already have the trauma of, you know, the home life you mentioned, you, you know, mm-hmm. parents splitting at a young age is traumatic on its own. And then the church becoming a second home and that falling away is traumatic all over again. Right. Um, and then on top of that, you have the trauma of this relationship with him and, you know, all of this is happening. So two of the biggest traumas that you've talked about happened within the framework of church. So it's coming into a religious context. It's your spiritual side of you. It's your relationship with God being, you know, affected and in, in some ways being used to silence you. And so how did that affect your, your spiritual side and your, you know, you mentioned obviously not being able to walk, you know, even walking by certain churches was Mm -hmm. hard, but like, how did that affect your actual interest, I guess, in spirituality or in your faith? So I have a chapter in my book entitled spiritual wounds, which I talk about this. Basically, he contaminated everything about church Mm -hmm. for me. So there were trigger factors related to everything. You know, there's a beautiful hymn that many people might know. It's called In the Garden. Mm -hmm. Well, that was his favorite hymn. So when I hear that, that's all I can see Mm -hmm. and think of. Prayer is extremely difficult for me. It's getting better. I become very defensive if someone ever says the words to me. Well, the Bible says, um, no. I, 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 I cringe when I hear those words. So he really, he took all the things that were once such 
importance to me and brought such joy to me and really took it away from me. He stripped mm-hmm. me of those, the beliefs that I had. Now, I still have a faith in God, but I miss, I really do miss those connections I had within the church, but I can no longer have those same connections. He took that away from me. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, contaminating that environment is so, that's such a horrible side effect because, I mean, abuse on its own is so hard and, and so mm-hmm. terrible. But then to wrap it up with, right. you know, I always talk to people on the show, like you're, the spiritual side of you is just as important as the mental or physical side. And mm-hmm. to have that stripped away from you is such a loss. Such a loss. Yeah. It's such a loss. And, you know, it, it really wasn't just what he did to me. And there were many horrific things that he did to me, but it was who he was when he did it. Mm-hmm. And when someone is an abuse victim, it's horrific. And they, they can go to their spiritual leader. They can go to their church. Where do victims of clergy abuse go when mm. the same pain was caused within the church? Yeah. Where do we go? You yeah. know, we, we don't have that support system. It's taken away from us. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah, it's such an interesting topic. And I, you know, I, I've talked about this before um, on the show, but like my, you know, I had a very close relationship with my youth pastor as well. And it was, our our relationship ended largely because there was a an issue of sexual abuse, but I I thought it was a big issue that needed to be addressed, and he thought I needed to forgive that person, mm-hmm. um, even though you know the story it wasn't even my story of abuse, but I was supposed to forgive him for right. abusing someone else instead of speaking the truth about it, and just our relationship fracturing it going from like almost a father son relationship to splintering and being nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've tried to, explain to yeah, I've tried to explain to my wife. It's like, it's hard for me to think about going to a therapist because that's just someone in a, a little bit older in a position of authority that I have mm-hmm. to build trust with again. Mm-hmm. And that's a pastor going in counseling. And are they going to say you're in the wrong for saying something that's right. right. And right. so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And I can't imagine you know, with your experience, what that would feel like. And I think people fail to see that who are, who, who are outside looking yeah. in. They don't under, you know, I had someone say to me, well, Sandy, if, if you don't have a relationship with God, it's because you move. God didn't move. Well, those kinds of things aren't helpful to a victim <laughs> yeah. of clergy abuse. And I, I tell people, because I've had people say to me, well, you know, what should I say to a person who's been abused by someone in the clergy? And I, I, I tell them, first of all, you need to convey that it was not their fault. Mm-hmm. That would go yeah. a long way in, in having that person trust you, that you're, you're not going to find any fault with them for what happened to you. And, and people will find fault with even young children sometimes. Yeah. They'll say, well, even at 10, they should have known not to do, you know, say yes to that. Yeah. Um, and then I tell them, just be mindful of the things that you find comforting, like scripture reading, prayer, mm-hmm. Those are not comforting necessarily to a victim of clergy abuse. So before you say to a victim, I want to pray with you, you, Mm. it would be better to say to them, I know that your church spirituality can be hurt by what was done to you. So would it be okay if I pray with you? Yeah. And that, that again, lets that person know you understand what happened to me. Mm. So I, I, I think it's hard for people who are, have a spiritualness about them and who are churchgoers not to fall back on, you know, prayer yeah. and scripture because that's or their talk go-to. to my pastor or this or yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost, you know, the way that you're wording it almost sounds like you, when you're dealing with someone who is a survivor of any kind of abuse, you almost need to ask their consent 
for how they want to be treated. And you have to, I think that's a really good way. I just phrase that. Would you like me to pray with you? Would you? And too many times, I think, especially for Christians, you know, because we, we feel a sense of mission and bringing people to God, you know, sometimes we can let that overshadow what's going to help them Mm -hmm. in this area, you know, like before we can get them into the doors of a church or before we can have them, you know, come to my Bible study, you know, the first thing we need to do is, are they okay? Like, is they, are they physically okay? Are they mentally okay? Is there something else that we can do? And, you know, for some people, maybe you need to meet with them at a coffee shop and not a church office, you know, it's just. And those little things will tell them I can Mm, trust this person and they're going to be okay. I had one victim come up to me after a conference I had spoken and she said to me crying, you know, I used to believe in God and I don't believe in God anymore. And I feel like I'm a sinner and I'm going to go to hell, but I don't know how to believe in God. And I said to her, you know what? God's big enough and he knows why you feel the way you do. And you have every right to feel that way, but God's a pretty big God. And I think he can understand. Right. And and so that's a start. I mean, hopefully she will find her way back to some, and it's never going to be the same. I mean, my spiritual life is different. It's, you know, abuse is a lifelong effect, especially Mm -hmm. when it happens within the church. So you can't expect, and that's part of my problem early on. I thought, okay, once I have dealt with this, I'll be able to go right back into church and everything will be the same. And I was so saddened and disappointed to find that I wasn't going to have that same feeling that I had when I was 13 and 14. It just, right. it, and maybe with time it gets better. I don't know, but I'm okay with where I am. And I know God is okay with where I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm back to praying a little bit. I can read my Bible without, but I just don't want someone else telling me you know, mm. this is what you need to do, or this is right. how you have to behave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm reading uh, right now. I'm reading when the body keeps the score and it deals with, you know, trauma and its physical effects. And one of the things that kind of shook me was it talks about your, the way your brain develops. And it said it basically when you start and you're a, a little, little child, you have the very base of your brain that develops. And it's like stacks. So you have your, you know, I want to eat and I want to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And the next step is, you know, I'm starting to learn my letters and my blocks. And one of the things that really shook me since I've been doing all these interviews with people who've been victims of abuse is, you know, it basically says when you have a trauma, it, it fractures part of that stack. So everything that's built on top of that, that's why you see kids who are 10 years old, who developmentally never seem to progress past that level of thinking. And I, you know, I, again, I, I'm looking at this as someone who's not a therapist, someone who's not, but I'm seeing this where, you know, maybe it's the spiritual side of you that was stacking up that just Mm -hmm. froze. Maybe you froze in a relationship side where it's hard to build a normal relationship. And regardless of what it is, something is always damaged. Like there's never, there's never a way that abuse happens where part of you is not in some way hurt. Trauma also interrupts our cognitive thinking. It interrupts how we reason and how we look at things. And so for me for 27 years, yes, logically I I knew that, I could tell my husband, but there was a part of my brain that hit, like you said, was frozen huh, that would yeah. say, here's what's going to happen if you tell. So it, it really does interrupt the way you, I mean, it, the abuse may have happened 27 years ago, but it stayed with me. It yeah. never left me. It well, never your, left me. Your mind's trying to protect you. It's saying it's, exactly. it's, it's hyper alert now, which mm-hmm. is a good thing when you're in a situation where you need to survive. 
but when that fires off when you're driving by a sign in your mind your mind doesn't know the logic your mind just knows i need to react and protect you mm-hmm. and you know it's that's a really i i think when people you know because there's a lot of like i think stigma about talking about triggers and things like that but it's a very real, real. thing and it's 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 not, oh, they can't handle it, you know, in the sense of like, oh, I'm not mature enough to have the conversation, but it is a, your body is shooting all of its energy into stay safe, stay safe, stay mm-hmm. safe. So it could literally be a harmless person in a suit walking by, but your exactly. brain sees someone that looks like. And it happens, at, you know, you know, think, why did it happen today of all days? What what was yeah. it about today that made me think of that? Right. Or you yeah. have no control over it. So that that in itself creates anxiety because right. you don't know when it's going to happen. And right. um, will I be out in public? Am I going to be with family right. and friends and then feel this shock? And, and how um, do I hide it from them? Because I don't want them to know yeah. why I'm, you know, feeling this way because I'm at this particular restaurant or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Uh- so I want to circle back even further into your story. And you, you talked about obviously feeling a lot of shame and, you know, I really, I really feel for, you know, female victims within the church and, you know, because there is in, at least in the church context that I knew women were not equals in the church. And there was a very, there was the the identity of temptress seemed to be the go to. It was either mm-hmm. you're a woman of grace or you're temptress. There was no okay. in between. And I want to kind of talk about that the the purity culture side of things. Now I'm not I'm not debating the theological side of like you know should you have sex before marriage or things like that. But just the way, do you feel that purity culture played a big factor in the shame that you felt immediately after? And do you absolutely think, okay absolutely. You know, like I said earlier, I knew sex outside of marriage was wrong. I I now, and he had told me, of course, I wasn't worthy of anyone else loving me because I was no longer a virgin. And it was something I would have never done. It wasn't in my thinking of to ever, I mean, I was right. going to be a virgin when I got married and, and I, I would have never, and I had dated some and there was no way I'd ever let a boy do what this man did to me. And then I think again, back to the elders, these are, these are men dictating what's going to happen. So it was easy to tell me, I'd been raised in the church. I trusted the elders. I knew that they were in charge. So when they said I was to leave the church, who was I to question these men? You know, in that church of Christ, they're not allowed to, women are to teach Sunday school. They're not allowed to serve communion. I think that's similar to the Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Certainly they're, they're not, they're to be told and taught by men. So mm-hmm that culture is definitely there. And as far as, you know, if you're the good, you're either a good person and you're virtuous or you're not. And I was not, I, I, and, and I carried like that, that affected my self-esteem and who I thought I was. It was, Hmm. and it wasn't who I wanted to be. It wasn't what I had planned. It wasn't what I thought would ever be my story. And yet it was my story. So yeah, it was, it was, a huge factor in how I was treated and how I felt about myself that I, I felt, I felt dirty and unworthy and they told me I was so, hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, so, what you so, believe. Yeah. So obviously this is how you felt you, you mentioned, you know, talking to a friend and that, you know, their response being a patient and understanding one, you talking to your husband being a patient, understanding supportive kind of role 
would you say that community has been the biggest healing factor for you moving forward? Or do you think, has there been anything else that's been like a huge help to you as you've tried to heal from this trauma? Well, certainly I could not have made this journey without my, my friends and my husband. But I think the other factor was that I early on started educating myself. I Googled everything I could about clergy sexual abuse. I, I remember going into a Christian bookstore and I said, I'd like some, a book on clergy sexual abuse. And she looked at me like I was some kind of an idiot. I mean, like, who, who does that? She said, well, I, we don't have books on that. And she said, but we have abuse in the Christian home. And I said, no, I'm specifically looking for clergy abuse. She said, well, I don't think it happens enough that someone would have a, written a book about it. <laughs> but I found everything I could, every article. Marie Fortune has written book on this topic. She's one of the experts in this field. And so I just read everything I could. And then I began to understand what was done to me. And it wasn't my fault. I was manipulated. I was groomed. I was under his control, the power aspect of it. All of those things that I couldn't articulate 27 years earlier were now coming into focus for me. And so I tell victims, first of all, you need to understand it was not your fault what happened to you. You didn't have the coping skills. You didn't have the emotional stability at the time. You were targeted. He trapped you. And so to think that you could have responded any differently isn't accurate. You, you responded in the only way you knew how at the time. So, and the second thing is I tell them to educate themselves. You, you learn what was done to you so that you can understand it and accept it. For a long time, I didn't want to believe I was an abuse victim. I wanted to believe that I was old enough to have had an affair with a married man who was my pastor. Right. And I didn't want that label of abuse. But then I, I began to realize that is what he did to me. And so education was a big part along with my friends. And then finally, speaking out was became huge for me. I, I finally discovered that my story was going to help other victims. So I started volunteering for an organization that helps women who've been sexually abused by their pastors uh, called the Hope of Survivors. Mm -hmm. And all of that combination then led me to writing the book when I realized so many times people would say to me after they heard my story, oh, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not a writer and I don't really care to write a book. I don't want to put the time involved. And it, it finally dawned on me that my story was important and I probably did need to tell it. And I, I think uh, people who've read the book will find that it's, it almost reads like a novel. It is a storyline mm -hmm. of things that happen throughout my entire life up until I was 49 years old. Um, right. And certainly confronting him is an interesting chapter in, in how he responded and what I needed from him and what I didn't get. And, I, and then after I confronted him, I went to his elders. I sent letters to his elders. I got no response. So then I went to the denominational leaders, which are in Indianapolis. I requested a meeting with the president. He refused to see me, mm. but he directed me to someone else. So I had a meeting with this group of people. They were very nice. They were very patient. But in the end... I got the same response that I got all the way down the line. This happened 27 years ago. It's not something we think is germane to his ministry today. So we're not going to do anything about it. So I, I really had, I had no place else to go, but to tell my story. Well, that's such a, it's such a misunderstanding of how, again, the mind of a trauma survivor works to say, you need to go. Why didn't you go the next day? Why didn't you do it? And I don't think, pastors or anybody, I don't think anybody understands until they start studying it for themselves. The, I think the average is 20 years after, I think that's the, 
there was a study done and it was yeah. like 26 years or something is the I average. I read the average abuse happens between the ages of four and five mm-hmm. and the time to come forward is age 52. I, I read, yeah. I'm sure it's somewhere in that range, but it's four it's to five. It's a lot of time. <laughs> Before, longer than the statute of limitations because, in most places. Absolutely. And that was the problem with mine. I could, I had no legal action that I could take against this yeah. man. If, however, he had been my teacher, it would have been against the law. But it was mm-hmm. not against the law because he wasn't my teacher. He was a, my pastor. Uh-huh. So I had no legal recourse, which was frustrating. But I, I, I wanted him, I wanted his church to take action and remove him. And they weren't going to do it. Again, he was too he important, was too important. To Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. exactly. So, so I felt very frustrated by having to continually beat these doors down and nothing was going to be done. Right. So the legal system obviously needs a lot of work and mm-hmm. there's people, you know, I have a very close friend who's been working very hard to kind of reform a lot of those laws and, and you know, has spoken and, you know, given her testimony about that sort of thing. Joy Ryder with Out of the Shadows, like she's been very active in pushing for you know, that window of time to be expanded and right. if not done away with in general, but, and, but obviously we don't have too much effect on the legal side and we can, you know, there are probably some people listening who do have voices in their churches or even in their, you know, we can expand this, even their businesses or any other environment where abuse can happen. What should, if, a, if there's a pastor listening, he says, I absolutely hate abuse. I don't want it happening. I want it to be handled the right way. What would you say to someone in a leadership position to consider when, you know, a story of abuse comes across their desk in their, in their ministry? Well, first of all, I think the abuser needs to be removed immediately. And if it's a credible accusation with some proof and it's not denied, then he's removed and he's not given the chance to make a confession in front of the church and ask for forgiveness. Hmm. Um, the second thing that needs to happen is I think it's important that you would have one person as a spokesperson so that you don't have all kinds of people talking and making different hmm. dis- choices and decisions. And it should be one person who speaks with clarity, who speaks with openness, who explains exactly what has happened and what the next steps will be. Then there needs to be a support for the victim. And, and that needs to be made clear to the congregation that there will be no blaming the victim for what happened. The responsibility of maintaining boundaries is always with the minister, always with the pastor, Mm -hmm. no excuses. And so that needs to be made clear that there will be no victim blaming here. And then there should be counseling provided. And that counseling should be outside of the church. The church is not in the position to give any kind of counseling to this victim. They're too close to the situation. And then if it's possible, which isn't usually possible in the independent churches like the Baptists and the Church of Christ, to set up an independent review board. But those independent churches are very reluctant to do that. They are very closed. They don't want anyone from the outside coming in. So that's a problem, I think, when you don't have an outside independent review. And if it involves a child, then you automatically report it to the the police. No questions asked. There's not a discussion. There's not an elders meeting held. It is the police are contacted right away. So like in my case, I wasn't, I was a minor, but I wasn't probably considered a child. So, you know, I don't think, and in some states, the age of consent is 16. So in some states, it wouldn't even be illegal. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and the last thing is you don't hide the information. Covering up only helps the perpetrator. It doesn't help the church Mm -hmm. and it doesn't help the victim. So, and, and the other thing about that is too, is that 
when you hide that information, you're enabling that person and you become mm-hmm. complicit in, in that. So I think to have a policy in place that's very strong that says up front, this is what we expect. And if this is right. any of this information, then you're going to be removed from this position. Right. I mean, that's, those are just a couple things that, and I would say also, don't be so quick to forgive the offender. Be careful right. about that quick forgiveness and cheap grace. These men are very clever. They're, they're usually very charismatic. So they've not only taken some manipulative tools and used them on their victim, they've used them on the congregation as well. Right. I mean, my abuse went for five years. So the entire time of his ministry, he eventually was promoted to the senior minister. For the entire time, less six months, as he stood and preached and gave his sermons, he was having sex with me. Mm. So, you know, don't trust him then to say he's sorry and he'll never do it again. He spent five years lying to you. So why would he at this point start telling the truth? Right. Yeah. yeah and well, I guess this is just one more question, but I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. Do you feel like, because one of the things that I've, I've spoken with people who've, who've dealt directly with people who've been predators and have interviewed them and try to understand the psych, like psychology of that. And one of the things I mentioned was like, there are some who are opportunists who will insert themselves in positions mm-hmm. to have you know, access to children or teenagers or whoever their ideal target is. Did you feel that was the case here? Did you feel like he had inserted himself into this position for that kind of power and access? Or do you think it was an afterthought for him or, or no, I, I, I don't know. Was, if you're... No, I think I, I, I remember asking him once, you know, why did yeah. he go into the ministry? And he said, well, I went to the, the, the Christian university because I could play basketball there and I could play basketball. Okay. He, he, he never had a real calling. It right. wasn't like he, he slipped into this slowly. It was who he was from the beginning. In fact, about two months after he was hired at our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of some inappropriate Hmm. behavior. My elders met with him and he didn't deny it. He said he was sorry. He begged for forgiveness. He promised he'd never do it again. And within a few short months, he was kissing me in my hallway. So this is how these men operate. It's how they operate. And, And so pastors who are good and are faithful to their callings. And as you said, there are many of them out there. They need to take the stand against these men as Mm. much as victims do and say, this is not something we're going to tolerate in our profession. And it is a profession. It's not just a calling. You know, it's a, it's, it's a profession and they're expected to stay within certain boundaries. They're expected to have standards. And when they step out of those boundaries, they should be removed. You know, a doctor, any other profession, a doctor, a counselor, anytime you have taken on the role of helping another individual, individual, it's always your responsibility to maintain those boundaries. And when you don't, you lose your license, you're removed, but mm. that's not the case with pastors and right. it shouldn't be that way. Right. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. So if someone wants to pick up a copy of your book, I know I want to, I want to read through the entire thing soon. Where's the best place to find that? And if they want to connect with you and see more about what you're doing, what's the best website or social okay. media channel to connect with you? Um, my book is on Amazon. Uh, It's also on my website, which is, this is a little long. So www.sandyphillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M.com. And if you Google me, I think a lot of, I have a face author Facebook page as well under the same name. So information can be found there. And there's other sites too, that I think for victims would be helpful. But yeah, those those are my websites. And like I said, the book is on Amazon. 
Okay. Yeah. And the, the book is let us pray on you. It's yeah. Like she said, it's available on Amazon. I definitely recommend picking it up. And I know I was listening to some of your other interviews. I haven't had time to read it uh, because we booked this pretty recently, Right. but I'm excited to, to be able to jump in and read it. And I always love getting to connect with people who are writing on this subject. And I, I appreciate the work you're doing in raising awareness because it is it, there, there needs to be a lot of books written, a lot of information out there because mm-hmm. it is unfortunately a problem that's pretty widespread. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate your podcast and that you too yeah. are trying to get the message out. And I've certainly enjoyed this interview. You're a great uh, host. And so I thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.